Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers research series. And I am currently at Ron Schweiger's house, and we're experimenting with doing the podcast right here next to each other. I think I'm going to have to ask you to step into the kitchen. Okay. And Ron, say hello to the audience whenever you get a chance. Hello, audience. How are you? This is Ron. Thank you so much, Ron. There was just a little feedback, and uh, unfortunately, uh, ladies and gentlemen, normally I would have a microphone, but uh, where we we both would be able to be right uh, in the same room together. But unfortunately, uh, that was not the case this time. But but here we are. We we have silenced it a little bit. Unfortunately, uh, me and him. Uh, we'll not have any direct safe time, but uh, all of you can also go to uh, the Facebook page and you'll see a video that we recently did where he was just giving me a little bit of a tour of all his Brooklyn memorabilia around the house. And um, we, we can briefly talk about that before we get into the, the thick of uh, what we're here for today, uh, Ron. Um, it, it's, it's remarkable, uh, spe- you know, of course you have a lot of Brooklyn uh, uh, Brooklyn Bridge stuff, but your your overall collection uh, of, of Brooklyn Bridge stuff. Uh, we we were looking at some Nathan, and of course your Dodgers memorabilia. It's astounding. Well, it's not Dodgers. It's Brooklyn Dodgers, specifically right. Brooklyn Dodgers. Exactly. That's <laughs> that is true. You're not gonna have any any Los Angeles Dodgers or hardly anything there for that. No, to me, um, there's, to me, there's no Los Angeles Dodgers. <laughs> Exactly, and and uh, I I was talking to somebody once, uh, and and it seems the Giants held more of the fans because I think a lot of Dodger fans took it so personally uh, leaving, but a lot of uh, fans, and it seems like Willie Mays kept a lot of Giants fans around, but somebody told me that just like the uh, um, Los Angeles Angels are the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, uh, he refers to the Giants as the New York Giants of San Francisco. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's interesting that um, over the many, many decades, there have been uh, a number of professional sports teams, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, that have left the city that they originated from and moved elsewhere. But there is no team, no professional team that left a city that still to this day has a following like the Brooklyn Dodgers does. And why do you think that is? I don't know. It's the mystique that the Dodgers had. Um, Many of the players actually lived in Brooklyn at the time. Um, um, And um, they were your neighbors. And uh, they went shopping where you went shopping. Um, the, The pediatrician that took care of the Brooklyn Dodgers' children lived in Ditmas Park on East 19th Street between Ditmas Avenue and Dorchester Road. Uh, it was Dr. Morris Steiner. And uh, interestingly, when my older son was born, we lived around the corner in the apartment house. And at that time, I did not know that he was the pediatrician for the Brooklyn Dodgers players. And he was the first pediatrician for my son. If I would have known that he was the Dodger pediatrician, he never would have gotten me out of his office. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, exactly. You would have been just asking question after question, of course. So, Absolutely. So, and and this is actually this is actually a good segue. Uh, then, you know, the, the Dodgers were so much a part of the community. So why don't we we walk a little up Bedford Avenue all the way to Bedford Stuyvesant? Um, what, what you know, if you were generally if you were generally in Bedford Stuyvesant, how long do you think it would normally take for that walk uh, to get to Ebbets Field? From the middle of, well, it, first of all, you mentioned Bedford Avenue. It happens to be the longest street in Brooklyn. It, it registers about eight miles long from Emmons Avenue in Sheepshead Bay all the way up to Manhattan Avenue at the edge of Williamsburg where it, where it enters uh, Greenpoint. It's about eight miles. Mm-hmm. And from Sheepshead Bay, it goes into um, Midwood, uh, Flatbush, Midwood, um, the Kings Highway area, um, then into the Sheepshead Bay area. Um, so it, it covers a, a lot. But it also goes into um, Crown Heights, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Williamsburg, and it ends where it enters Greenpoint at Manhattan Avenue. So it goes through many different communities, Bedford Avenue does. But in Bedford-Stuyvesant, to get to Ebbets Field, it would be if you were walking, again, depending on – from, let's say, Bedford Avenue and, uh, oh, I don't know what's Cross Street, but I would say it's a, a good 20, 20, a 20 to 25-minute walk to get to Ebbets Field from the middle of um, Bed-Stuy. Yeah, not too, not too bad. It, you know, it, it was definitely an incentive to not have to take the trolley if you wanted to, uh, you know, just enjoy the day in Brooklyn. So, so you know, Bedford-Stuyvesant, it, we know it now as those two words together. It's it's, it's Bed-Stuy uh, for short, of course. Um, but it really is just two different neighborhoods, correct? Well, yes. Um, if we go back to the very beginning, um, when the Dutch arrived here in the 1600s, uh, they were the first settlers here, um, and eventually they started to buy the land from the local Indians. When I say buy the land, there was no money transacted because – what the Indians need money for. There were no stores, all right? Even the Dutch uh, didn't use money because there were no stores until they started to build homes and stores and commercial places. Um, But there was bartering and and trading with things, and that's how the Dutch bought the land from the Indians. Um, And um, so you had the Dutch settled five towns in Brooklyn, and one, they gave permission for a woman Lady Deborah Moody to establish an English town in Brooklyn. That was the southern end near the Atlantic Ocean called Gravesend. Well, eventually, um, the beginning of Bedford-Stuyvesant was two two towns that adjoined one another. One was Bedford Corners, and the other was Stuyvesant. And Stuyvesant named after Peter Stuyvesant, who was the one of the governors of um, uh, Stuyvesant. Um, um, in lower Manhattan. And, um, and, you know, you had two towns next to each other, which was very common in early, in early what we call Brooklyn. Uh, Flatbush was next to Flatlands. New Utrecht was next to um, uh, um, Bensonhurst. So you had all these towns next to each other. What happened was when the Brooklyn Bridge was completed in 19... 19- I'm sorry, 1883, it all of a sudden started a population explosion coming into Brooklyn. 
And uh, for the first time, people in overcrowded lower Manhattan, the tenements, were able to come into Brooklyn without having to take a ferry or a rowboat or, God forbid, to swim across the East River. They were able to come with their own horses and wagons across the Brooklyn Bridge, and developers started to see dollar signs. And they started to offer the farmers a lot of money to purchase the farmland and build new housing tracts. And this is how the little Dutch village of Bedford and Stuyvesant started to grow. And um, starting in the middle to late 1800s, after the Brooklyn Bridge completed 1883, you had these beautiful brownstones and limestones being built in what today we call the Bedford-Stuyvesant area. So that was a turning point. The Brooklyn Bridge was a big turning point. And initially, the Bedford and Stuyvesant areas was largely a Jewish and some Italian area, white, mostly white, Jewish and some Italian. And then in 1929 was the stock market crash, the beginning of the terrible depression. And what happened was a lot of blacks from the South started migrating North to the big cities, of course, including New York city and and Brooklyn and uh, to find work in the North where they figured big cities would have more of an opportunity to find work. Well, a lot of them started to settle in Bedford Corners and into Stuyvesant. And even some of the whites and the blacks started to take up arms to possibly fight against each other, which did not happen, which did not happen. And in 1931, the Brooklyn Eagle newspaper, which was at that time a major national publication, it published from, uh, I believe, 1841 to about January 1955, 114 years they published. And even Walt Whitman, the famous poet, was an editor in the early years of the Brooklyn Eagle. And in 1931, the Eagle coined the phrase Bedford Stuyvesant as the two separate communities started to meld together. And gradually it became, by the 1950s and 60s, one of the largest ghetto, black ghetto areas in the United States. And I believe it was second only to uh, in Chicago, the south side of Chicago. So this was another turning point. The Brooklyn Bridge was one. The Depression was another big turning point right there. Well, it may have at one time, but initially it became, uh, I think it was the second after Chicago. Um, And maybe later on, it became bigger than the one in Chicago. And um, it it wasn't, it it was depressing. There was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of crime. And um, it was written off as a, um, as a, a bad, bad area of, of New York City, especially Brooklyn, because of all the crime, a lot of statistics of, of crime going on there, burglaries, robberies, murder, assaults, and so on. Well, um, things really started to change again um, in the 1960s. Um, um, A lot of the churches started to offer a lot of after-school things, a lot of neighborhood activities and so on. And there were 
organizations that were offering uh, training for for young people to get off the streets. And uh, one of the one of the big uh, areas was something called Restora- Restoration Plaza. This was something that was started, I believe, in the very early 1960s. Um, and it was built on the site of an old milk bottling plant. Um, and this was um, on Fulton Street, uh, I think uh, 1368 Fulton Street. And it was a 300,000 square foot, $6 million complex, which included offices for the corporation. It had an art gallery, a recording studio, and the Billie Holiday Theater. For people who don't know Billie Holiday, she was one of the famous uh, female black singers of the day. Um, there was a, 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 a season where they presented major productions every year um, and restaurants started to open. So starting in the 60s, it's it really started to take shape where Bedford-Stuyvesant really started to slowly uh, come around. And, um, and something interesting, one of the really famous um, residents of uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant was Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm was um, the first female black elected to the Congress of the United States in 1968. And she was a Brooklyn College graduate. And in 1972, if I'm not mistaken, she was actually going to run for president of the United States. She never, of course, got the nomination. Um, now, there's something interesting. Right on the edge of Bedford-Stuyvesant, there is a community known as Weeksville. And it's named after James Weeks. And he was a free black man. And in 1838, he established a free black community right in what was to become the, the um, Bedford-Stuyvesant area. And it got to, it was, there was another free black community called Carsville, C-A-R-R. And they were very close to one another. But uh, Weeksville became the more popular one. And there was one gentleman named Moses Cobb. And he came from North Carolina. He walked from North Carolina to Weeksville. That's quite a walk. And uh, to escape the, uh, the slavery in the South. And he eventually became one of the first black police officers in Brooklyn. And this was in 1850s where he started his walking to Brooklyn. And I think it was in the 1880s or early 1890s, he became the first black police officer in Brooklyn. And he, was, he lived in Weeksville. Also, the first female black physician in New York State lived in Weeksville. Her name was Susan McKinney Smith. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think she's buried in Greenwood Cemetery. So, so you had a couple of prominent residents that lived in this free black community in Weeksville, which was part of Bedford-Stuyvesant. Well, Weeksville was rediscovered in 1968. Um, These men were flying in a private plane over the area, and they were, I don't know, mapping out something. And they passed over 
an area where they saw the, a configuration of a small street that sort of cut diagonally through the regular grid of the area. And they noticed there were a couple of houses on this street that really didn't belong in the regular grid. And after they landed, they got into a car and they found the place that they flew over. And this turned out to be the remnants of some of the houses of the original Weeksville from 1838. And it was on a street called Hunter Fly Road. And it's right off, Atla I think, Atlantic Avenue. And I forgot what the cross street is over there. And um, um, this, yeah, I think Ralph Avenue and Hunter Fly Road and Atlantic Avenue and Bergen Street. Absolutely. Today, this has been restored. Those three or four houses have been restored. And um, a resource center has been built adjacent to it for a learning facility for students and for the general public as well. So you can go on a tour, which I've done, of the Weeksville houses. There are about three or four of them. And um, during the excavation to restore, they found some items um, in the ground. And one was an old metal tin type of a woman dressed in the garb of the day from the 1800s. And she's known as the Weeksville woman. And there's a picture of her, uh, I believe, hanging in the restoration area. And if you were to go to Bedsty today, you would see another change taking place. It's called gentri gentrification. Um, some of the early brownstones um, are now going for over a million dollars. Some of the streets in Bedford-Stuyvesant have been designated New York City landmark streets, which means the homeowners cannot in any way change the exterior of the house. Inside, they can do what they want. Inside is not landmark. It's the exterior. So I know one section of President Street is, la is landmark, and there are a couple of other streets in the Bed-Stuy area that have the landmark designation by the New York City Landmarks Commission. So this helps to stabilize the area. Um, now, there's a, it's a two-sided two, two coin here. Gentrification is good, and on the other hand, it's not. It's good for the people who currently own homes there because the real estate values start climbing. And it's good if they want to sell, if they can get a lot of money. But it's not good for some of the original people who are renting there because now the rentals are increasing. So some of the original people who are staying cannot afford the rents and they have to move. They can't afford it. So it's good and it's not good depending upon who you are. So that's the, the two-sided coin in Bedford-Stuyvesant today, or for, actually for any area that goes through gentrification. I'm not getting your voice. Oh, okay. Uh, it sounds like uh, we might have... Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. I, I, I don't know, know what I did, I did wrong. wrong. No, you can hear me now. I got it. <laughs> okay, now I hear you. Okay. Uh, we're, having, we're having a great time here with the technology, right? <laughs> um, so, so, Ron, let me... Let me I'll, I'll start over since nobody could hear me. I appreciate you uh, informing me of that, but um, I oh yeah, I was saying that that uh, you know some of the issues of gentrification uh, were coming up in my neighborhood of East Flatbush when a, uh, a probably you know 40 year old to 50 year old uh, white woman accused a six year old boy of touching her butt and called the yes that was and the videotape clearly shows 
That was not the case. Um, he was walking through this store with his mother, and he had a backpack on his back. And this um, white woman was standing, uh, looking at some merchandise. And as this young boy walked by, his backpack brushed up against her back. And, of course, the kid kept walking because he didn't slam her with it. It just brushed against her. And the woman turned around. And, and to make a long story short, she brought charges that uh, he, he touched her, he molested her. And, and the, the, the video clearly shows from the security camera that was not the case. Sorry, this, is, this was a mm. terrible incident. And that was just recently, within the last couple of months. Yeah, and and it's just, you know, I, I, it, basically it's the same thing. It's similar fashion. I don't think it happened the way it happened in Bedford-Stuyvesant because of the location. But with Flatbush, you know, you I, I think as as somebody who, who um, is not from the – was not born in Flatbush and not from the area – you have to recognize the, you know, and down there it's, it is very much a Caribbean culture. Um, you just have to recognize uh, that there's, there's certain things that, you know, you shouldn't uh, be, be complaining about necessarily. There, there, you know, you, you, you need to be respectful of the culture that, that has been building for 30 to 40 years there, as far as I'm concerned. And, and I, I think that some of the, Generally, we're talking about white people, uh, young professional white people who move into these neighborhoods do not understand that element of it. Well, that's true. And also, if you go to the northern end of um, Bedford-Stuyvesant, you go past DeKalb Avenue, and as you approach Flushing Avenue, you're getting very close and into the Williamsburg community. And Williamsburg over there is a very large Orthodox Hasidic Jewish community. And it seems that if you drive up or walk up Bedford Avenue, you all of a sudden see you go from the uh, black Bedford Stuyvesant and now the gentrification, you see a lot of young white people walking around. And then all of a sudden it blends in and you all of a sudden see a lot of Hasidic men and women with their children. And so here you have one community blending into another community, totally different ethnic, totally different religious, and they live side by side. And this is what Brooklyn is all about. That's what New York City is all about. That's, that is for sure. And, and the, uh, you know, as a biker, the sign for me when I, I know that I'm really getting there is that every single parked car is either a Toyota Sienna or a Honda Odyssey, which is the only car that it seems the the, uh, the Hasidic use. And I'm like, oh, we're, we're, we've arrived. If I, if I don't see the, the beards yet, uh, then I know because of the Honda Odysseys and the Toyota Siennas, I'm in uh, the Hasidic Williamsburg. Um, I, I, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at some photos of Weeksville the Heritage Center, and, and what what sticks out to me is the the it it, it it's this just little piece that shows you how uh, spread out Brooklyn used to be with all with with, with the, the the backyards and and the land. Um, it it's it's just you know this one little little uh, patch of land that just shows how not everything was completely built up uh, in the same way, and it, you know it it, it 
it reminds me of the fact that like going to 14th Street used to be going to the country in Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. Now, an- another another interesting thing that I, I didn't mention earlier about um, a-, a change that took place to increase the population. Um, after the Brooklyn Bridge opened and developers started to buy up the farmland to build communities, now there were already railroads running through Brooklyn. But as more and more farmland was being purchased by the developers, the owners of these privately owned railroads, there was no subway system yet. These were, these were steam railroads that ran pretty much on the street. And um, so the railroad owners started to expand the railroads further out into um, the countryside, the, the farmland, as the developers started to expand themselves. And this expansion of the railroads allowed more and more people to go further and further out into um, the the areas of Brooklyn that was undeveloped yet. It was you know little villages, little towns, a lot of farmland, and this is how new areas, new neighborhoods, new communities started to develop. And that's that's how the the railroads really expanded everything. The Brooklyn Bridge, the railroads, and uh, 20 years after the Brooklyn Bridge opened, the Williamsburg Bridge opened in 1903. And this brought more people into Brooklyn. Because the Brooklyn Bridge, believe it or not, for those people who don't know, the Brooklyn Bridge had trains and trolleys on it originally until the 1940s. And then the Williamsburg Bridge opened in 1903, the Manhattan Bridge in 1909 with trains on it, and all connecting Manhattan with Brooklyn. And this greatly increased the population of Brooklyn. And today, 2016, Brooklyn, if it were a separate city, which it was at one time prior to 1898, would be, I believe, the third or fourth largest city in the United States population-wise, about 2.6 million in Brooklyn by itself. It's just, it's fascinating to me. I always like to say, you know, I tell people Brooklyn's my favorite city in the world. And um, uh, for all of you uh, uh, out there who have not seen the uh, Ken Burns baseball, the opening of Ken Burns baseball starts with a Walt Whitman poem and then cuts to, after zooming in on a church, because it's the city and borough of churches, uh, it it shows uh, stock video, which I'm sure all of you can now look up on YouTube, uh, separate from the baseball movie, but it shows stock footage of the trains going over the Brooklyn Bridge uh, back in the day. Mm-hmm. And um, it, 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 but it's, it's still, it is remarkable that they haven't done that much. Uh, you know, they, they still have the promenade. Um, it, it, you know, other than trans, you know, transforming uh, it into a, a, a roadway as opposed to a trackway, uh, there not much has changed about that bridge, and and, and you you know there's a reason why you uh, 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 cycle, you know, really watch the pedestrians on the bridge because it's the most famous bridge in the world. That's true, and um, if you walk across the bridge to show you how it hasn't changed the light towers that you see on the bridge were not part of the original plans to build it. Because when the bridge started its construction in 1869, 1870, and it took 14 years to complete, there was no electricity. The um, Edison invented the the incandescent bulb in, I believe it was 1878. 
and the bridge wasn't completed until 1883. So later on during the construction, electricity was added. So those light towers on the bridge are the original light towers, but the bulbs have been changed since. I can guarantee that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would guess so. Uh, well, we're, we're coming to the end of the episode, uh, but it's, it's always fascinating to talk Brooklyn with you, Ron. You're, you, you are literally a walking Brooklyn encyclopedia, and I'm so thrilled that I was able to uh, not only meet you in person today out at your, your home, but uh, get such a brilliant tour, and, and we'll certainly have to uh, take it from, from there once we have more battery power and more time power. <laughs> okay, it was my pleasure, Sam, and good to see you again. And uh, thank you, thank you all for listening in. We always appreciate you tuning in to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and we'll keep on trucking. Have a great one, and uh, long live Brooklyn, everybody. Take care.